so um, just a little note to start off. This is this whole series, like a mod podge of the last seven or so years of presentations I've done. So I was trying to put a slideshow together today, and I think about this stuff all the time, but I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to this stuff. So like, there's so much I want to tell you. We have limited time, and I promise that you will be done at the time that we promise you will be done. But if I go a little fast, just know that I'm going to get you the notes, so you don't have to like write down every quote. You're going to get those. Um, and then we're recording the talk, I think, so it's going to be great. Okay? But yeah, I'm going to drop some bombs, because Jesus made them, and they're like, what? Like, are you kidding? And it's going to be awesome. Okay? So don't get crazy or motion sickness from all the bombs you're going to drop, but you'll be fine. Um, welcome to the series. So I wanted to start off by telling you a little bit about myself, because you're like, who the heck is this chick that's just talking to us about all this stuff? Why do we have to be here? Um, so my story is actually very connected to theology of the body. So believe it or not, I just realized during Mass, 10 years ago on Valentine's Day is the first time that I heard about theology of the body, because Jesus loves me. And he used this teacher that I knew, and this guy started talking about TOV, and I was like, what is this stuff? And I want more of it. So I started reading and researching. I started college. I was a freshman at Tulane University. I was studying from Tulane, not in this room. Um, I was studying biochemistry and I was pre-med. And I've always had in my heart this desire to work with and for women. So I knew I was going to be doing that in some capacity. So my second semester of college, I ended up signing up for this intro to women's studies class because I thought that would be super interesting and fun. And on the first day of class, we had to go around the room and say our name our biological sex and our gender. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I thought those were the same thing. To me, as a freshman in college, that was a, a big deal. Now, that's becoming more and more of a conversation that we're having, but I, I was restless because I was like, what the heck is this? We sit in class for like four hours a week. There's 33 of us, three men and 30 women, and we fight, like we just disagree on what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. And I realized like, that we're not getting anywhere, right? We're not getting to any kind of truth because no one's agreeing on anything. So first I'm asking the question, is there truth? And then I'm saying, if it is, what is it? So I started asking this question for myself and then for my ministry, like what does it mean to be a woman, okay? Um, I decided to change my major to women's studies and I would go to these meetings like undercover to like listen to what they talk about even though I didn't agree with much of what they were saying because they gave me free lunch and because I wanted to be able to like change their minds. I was like, I don't know what it means to be a woman, but that's not it. So I want to tell them what it really is. And then praise the Lord, he reminded me like, well, do you know what that is yet? And I'm like, no. So I realized I needed to learn. And it sounds really simplistic, but God is sometimes very simple with us. And I chalk it up to the Holy Spirit. I was like, God, you made women. So if anyone's going to have the answer, I think it's you. So he put it on my heart. He provided for it in many ways, including financially. And that's why I ended up studying theology. Um, and because I've recently been exposed to theology in the body, I started diving deeper into that. And, you know, who doesn't fall in love with John Paul II? I fell in love with John Paul II. He's got a whole fan club. I might be the president thought about that later. But the reality is, John Paul II has written all of these teachings, not only on the gift of what it means to be human, on the gift of what it means to be a man or be a woman, but for me, as a woman, he has written the most authentic, 
joy-filled response to the question of what it means to be a woman. And it's a real answer. It's not like fake and fluffy and like, we just walk in flowers all day and we never struggle. Like, no, it's a call to women to stand up for truth and in a sense to be warrior women at times. Um, because our battle's not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. So, um, oh, currently, fast forward like nine years, here I am. And I've taught at the high school level for a few years. One of my students is here, two of my students. Um, and I'm currently studying for my PhD in bioethics. So medical ethics, women's health is my focus. We can talk more about that another time. Basically, life is awesome. And no, I don't have all the answers to life. And what I want to do, though, is provide for you some of the gifts that I've been given that have helped me to get to the deep core of like the big life questions that we have. Like, what the heck does it mean for us to be here? Like, why are we here? What is the purpose of my life? So, the quote I wanted to start with that I totally forgot was on the back of your seat shirts. I just thought it was appropriate. Um, but this is from, who else? John Paul II. But he said, it is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He is waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are so attracted. It is he who provoked you with that thirst for fullness that will not let you settle for compromise. It is he who urges you to shed the masks of a false life. It is he who reads in your heart your most genuine choices, the choices that others try to stifle. It is Jesus who stirs in you the desire to do something great with your lives, the will to follow an ideal, the refusal to allow yourselves to be ground down by mediocrity, the courage to commit yourselves humbly and patiently to improving yourselves and society, making the world more human and more fraternal. This quote answers the question for you of what is the purpose of my life? What is our vocation? Our vocation is to love. And that's why we call the series the Vocation to Love series. But we're going to dive deeper into the story of what it means to be man and woman. And to do that, we really need to go back to the beginning. Now, because we're all at different places. I wanted to give a little bit of historical background, and because I'm a nerd. But that's a blank slide. Didn't know that was there. JP2. Okay, I really like him, so I have a few slides with pictures on them, because I like them a lot. Okay, I wanted to show you with this that like prayer, it doesn't look like in Mass all the time, right? You should go to Mass. But in addition, you should do things like with friends, be outdoors, be cool. He's like in a canoe praying morning prayer. But the struggle that you see him experiencing, right, when he's like has his head resting on the cross, that is prayer just as much as him being present to the gifts that are around him, right? So prayer is the reality that God, if he truly is within us, right, we can talk to him no matter where we are because we are never apart from him. His presence always resides within us if we're open to that gift. So, his experience in early priesthood, just to show you why I think it's perfect that he's the one um, really speaking to you, I think, through all these teachings. He said about his early priesthood, because he was a chaplain at a university, so just like Father Andrews here at LSU, he was a chaplain at a university in Krakow, in Poland. He said, this relationship between thought and life, theology and pastoral care, is really crucial. If I look at my own experience, I can easily see how my work with young people in the University Chaplaincy of Krakow 
helped me in my meditation on fundamental aspects of the Christian life, right? You are actually, this, this is for you in a sense, but this is also a gift for us and for me, right? Because you're living it. You're meeting day to day with the realities of the struggles of what does it mean that I'm here and what am I supposed to do with my life? And those struggles matter and they're real. You should be allowed to give voice to them. So don't be afraid of those struggles or as if, if you're holy, awesome. I hope you're all holy. Your call to holiness though does not mean that you stifle your struggle, right? It means that you give voice to them and you keep moving forward through those struggles. Then, um, one more little quote. He said, daily life with the young, the opportunity to guide them in their joys and efforts and their desire to live to the full, the vocation to which the Lord called them, helped me to understand ever more deeply the truth that the human being grows and matures in love, that is, in the gift of himself, and that in giving himself, he receives in exchange the possibility of his own fulfillment. He said that it is only in the sincere gift of self that we can find ourselves. That's what I hope that you walk away with. The gift of your vocation, whatever it is when you take vows one day, and especially right now in your vocation to love, it's about you offering yourself as a gift. Whether that's you're going to be respectful to your professor, you really gave you a bad grade. Or, um, I don't know, you're going across a toll booth and you have to pay this lady and like, you tell her to have a nice day, right? Like, it's small things, but those things matter. But we discover ourselves when we offer ourselves as a gift to someone around us. So, in terms of history, just so you can see why he thought this was so important, Theology of the Body happened from 1979 to 1984, and this is a series of audiences. So the Pope, he's an audience on Wednesdays, and he stands in his like, Pope window, and he waves at everyone, and he delivers a message, right? Well, he did this for five years straight. So I thought I was awesome enough that I could take those five years and do them in seven hours with all of you, consecutive Wednesdays. Yeah, so we're going to do our best. Clearly not going to really grace the surface, but... I just wanted you to see that it's a, it's a growth, like it's a gradual process. But his first, I would say one of his most important works, um, one of my favorite things that he's written is called Love Responsibility, okay? He's talking about how the gift of love is important, but the gift of love, is, if it's authentic, it's also responsible, that we're responsible for the other person, right? Then in 1968, the church released the Encyclical Humanum Vitae, which is the church's teaching against contraception, right? Things blew up big time when that happened. I'm gonna get into that a little bit more with the next slide. In 1969, he wrote something called The Acting Person, another thing about philosophy, but it really focuses on the gift that I have as a person and that you have as a person that I have consciousness. I can be aware of and choose with my freedom and my free will how and where and when and to whom I offer myself as a gift. That is not a capacity that animals have. As much as we love them and they're cute, they're not the same things as human beings. Um, theology of the body, that's where it comes in. There's this huge philosophical foundation that he laid and then he dove into the theology, right? So five years of presenting these things. Dona Vitae is something on respecting how we bring life into the world, and that could be a whole nother talk. Miller's Dignitatum, that's just because it's like my favorite thing ever written, on the dignity and vocation of women, but I wanted you to see there's a progression, a foundation of philosophy and then theology because they're so interconnected. And it all comes back to freedom, what does it mean that we are free, and what does it mean that we are man and woman? 
Okay, so specifically about responsibility. This was like the prequel to TOB, which is short for theology body, if I say that. Um, so he is aware that a lot of our knowledge is like this cerebral, intellectual, abstract thing. In the classroom, you learn facts, you write them down, you take a test. But that's not the only kind of knowledge. He really lived and studied a, a philosophy that required human experience. So he would go on camping trips. Uh, I mean, he did a bunch of cool stuff, but he would go with the young people and spend time with them and have real conversations with them. And they're asking the same questions that you're asking. Like, is the Lord calling in a marriage or religious life? You're asking that question probably a lot of you. And if he is calling in marriage, should I marry this person or not? Right? He's having those conversations with them. So he's developing this from that perspective, from this sort of counseling aspect. And like I said before, freedom and sexuality, those are the two most prevalent topics for John Paul II. What does it mean that I am free? And what is this? Like, what do we really believe about the gift of our sexuality? Does it matter that we are male and female, or is that just sort of an add-on? It does matter. We're gonna do that in like a few presentations, but <laughs> just in case you're wondering. Um, okay. Just to give you the background of humanity, Vitae, this is the one slide I'm gonna focus on it. I don't have a lot of time, so in short, um, until the 1930s, every church around the world agreed that contraception was a bad thing. And then one by one, they started changing their minds, changing their minds, changing their minds. So they started a commission, right? He included married people, he included priests, he included lots of people to talk about the reality of contraception. It's not like the church didn't think about this. She thought about it and prayed about it for years, okay? John Paul II, he got to go to Rome during the 1960s for Vatican II, which you all hear about a lot in different ways. But the communists would not let him go for the commission, okay? So spiritual reality is also present. Communism is more than just the physical presence of the soldiers. But they called it the runaway commission because when they voted, the votes that counted, you can see the number up here, they added 15, it was only bishops, archbishops, and cardinals, Nine voted yes, you should change the teaching. Three voted no, and three just abstained from voting. So you're like, well, why didn't the church change the teaching? Okay, because Pope Paul VI, who was the Pope at the time, is then offered the fruits of their labors and their years of studying and researching and praying, and he had to pray about, do I change the teaching because this is what they voted? Or Lord, are you calling me to hold up this teaching and to say no? Although everyone else says this is okay, I'm your father and I love you enough to say no, we cannot change it. Unfortunately though, because we're human beings, the church is made up of human beings, someone, people, leaked this to the media, it went out like crazy, priests started telling couples, oh yeah, 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 you can use contraception, and it was a mess. When I say it was a mess, I mean it still is a mess, right? We're still dealing with that. There are people that don't even realize that that's a problem. There are priests in the confessional telling people that it's not a problem. I want to point out, it's not, this is not a condemnation of those people. This is an invitation to realize that that question, why is that question so important? Because contraception, it really goes to the heart of what it means to be a man and woman in the gifts that they can offer to each other in the most intimate of ways. Because when a man and woman come together in the most intimate of ways, right, the real union, right, they can create new life. They are literally co-creators with God. That is kind of a big deal. There's no other creature on this planet that can say it's a co-creator with God, but the human person. So yeah, it's a, it's a biological reality, it's a physical thing, but there's a spiritual consequence to if I divorce 
the capacity that my body has to offer itself in love to another from the capacity to also bring life into the world. It comes down to the question of what is authentic love? John Paul II had written Love and Responsibility eight years before Pope Paul VI released Humanae Vitae. And I believe, and we know that he based Humanae Vitae on Love and Responsibility, I believe that he saw it as his duty to defend the human person in our call to love. That's why he eventually re released Humanae Vitae and he said, do not change the teaching. We are going to talk about Humanae Vitae in a lot more detail, like, I don't know, lesson five in about a month and a half. And it's going to be awesome, and you should all come. If you have any questions, really, come. It's like my favorite thing to talk about. Anyway, amongst other things, obviously, that I love talking about. Theology of the body, this is why you're here. But I wanted you to have that, to know that that was all a prequel. So then he's like, okay, people don't get it. They realize that we're saying to not divorce life and love from each other and how we offer ourselves as a gift, but we are losing all reasoning about why that matters. So I need to go deeper. I need to take them back to the beginning. I need to help them realize that sexuality is a gift, and it is that big of a deal, that a pope was willing to really sacrifice his life in a lot of ways to defend that teaching. But Paul VI never released another encyclical after that. I believe in a real spiritual way he was a sort of martyrdom the rest of his life. His people hated him after he said this. They hated him, right? And John Paul II is like, come on, like, let's go. Like, let's go deeper. Let's not just stop because we think this is more convenient. Let's go deeper. Why is this so important? So, the anthropology of the human person, which is just a really cool word of saying the philosophy of the human person. It's studying about what it means to be human. Theology of the body, if you look at the bottom, it splits up our existence as human beings into three pieces, okay? There's original man, meaning the beginning of when we were created up till the fall. There's historical man from the fall up to and including the end of time. And then there's eschatological man. After the end of time, new heavens, new earth, we all get our bodies back. Spoiler alert. And then where are we right now? We're in historical man, okay? But if we want to know where we're going, we have to know where we've come from, right? You can pick up a book in the middle, and a lot of us do that with our lives, but I want to invite you to go deeper and come with me back to the beginning. Because a lot of the answers that we're seeking, they really are out there, right? Theology of the body is largely focused on the first three chapters of Genesis. Three chapters of Genesis, y'all. Have you read the first three chapters of Genesis? You should. That's part of your homework. I'm a teacher, but that's your homework. Read three chapters of Genesis, the first three. We're going to dive into those, but it's because they're so rich. There's so much there. Okay. So. Dun -dun -dun. Jesus. You can take his words before mine, and that's what I'm quoting to you. In the Gospel of Matthew, they are asking him about the question of divorce. So, he goes to answer it, and this is where the body is based off of based on answering this question. And he says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered them, Have you not read that from the beginning, the Creator created them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and unite with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So it is that they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined, let man not separate. They objected. Why then did Moses order to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus answered, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Water break. From the beginning, excuse me, it was not so. He's like, guys, you're asking the wrong question. Like, and he's not, he's not condemning them. He's saying there's a hardness of heart, but he's convicting them. There's a difference, right? He's like, this is not enough. You can actually do more than just divorce each other. There's a call to love that calls you to more. You're not called to just be good, y'all. You're called to greatness, right? Greatness. A lot of people are good. We have a lot of good people in the world. And tell me how that's going for us, right? Not so good. Really? We're called to be great. That requires sacrifice. So, in the beginning, there are these terms that he uses a lot in reference to what it was like. So, most of what I'm talking about tonight is before the fall. I'll tell you when we go after the fall. So, with me, come back to the beginning, before the fall ever happened, in a world that you can hardly imagine because we don't know what that's like. We haven't experienced, right? Life without original sin and the effects of original sin and the complications, right? I don't know any of you that are walking around in perfect relationships with every human person you've ever encountered, right? It doesn't exist because everything's an effect of the fall. As stewards of creation, when we fell, all of creation was affected because we were given creation as a gift, right? So it affects nature in addition to our relationship with God, with myself, and with others, right? So, a lovely little adventure to the beginning of time. We're going to talk about original solitude, original unity, and original nakedness. Now, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you're like, wait, they say different things. No, they don't. They just give you different details, right? When you witness a story, you're all going to say something different, okay? So, on the first creation account, a lot of it has to do with the reality that God created from nothing, right? We can't do that. We create from something. We can put stuff together, but he literally created from nothing. The second creation account talks about these terms, original innocence, original happiness. What is the fall? So here we see that man has an awareness of himself. Man's going around the garden. He walks with God, and he's making choices, right? He's struck by the animals. He's naming the animals, right? It's a subjective account. It's this sort of experiential reality of the garden. So original solitude has to do with two things. Man's relation to God, who am I before God, and man's relation to woman, okay? Um, in the beginning, this is like one of those things that like my brain's like, what? But when they originally talk about Adam in the beginning, like the first creation account, before he creates woman, it's sort of more of an understanding of humanity as a whole, right? The gift of humanity as a whole. But when we see the creation of woman, that's where the Hebrew words specifically that we know as man and woman are now used. So it's ish, and from ish we have isha, man and woman. These are all really cool slides, but I'm telling you what they say. Self-consciousness, self-determination, we are not like the animals. A part of that is that I can be aware, right? I can come to know my surroundings, myself, those around me, 
right? I can also determine, I can choose with my freedom for good or for bad, for love or for hatred. But my big question for all of you is what is the difference between the man and the animals? This is audience participation time. So what do you think is the difference between man and the animals? Emotion, that's part of it. What else? A soul, what kind of soul? Rational soul, right? What does it mean to be rational? It means that I have the capacity for reason, right? This is a part of how we're made in God's image and likeness. So, God literally tells, he entrusts to Adam this mission. He says, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that move on the earth. He told man, you are the one that has dominion. I'm giving you, he's giving them dominion. He's giving us dominion because we are the ones that have capacity to have dominion. Okay? We have the gift of reason. We can lead. We can organize. I think puppies are so cute. They're cute. Love them. I have like three dogs growing up. Do you see any dogs that are like organizing each other and going and voting people to the Senate and the presidency? Do you? No, they don't. They can't. They don't have the capacity. It's not because they're dumb. They don't have the gift of reason. And that's okay that they don't have that gift. But we have a different gift, right? And because we have that gift, we are entrusted with the missions. And I don't care for all creation, but then include animals as well. So remember that a man is entrusted to be a guardian. Now, this is like a mix of the out of the body plus the catechism, because there's some things that I think are very important and sort of central to understand. This is a little philosophical thing called the hierarchy of being. You notice at the top, there's God, right? God is unlike anyone else because he is. He is God. He is the creator. Everything beneath him is a creature. Its life is dependent upon God. So when we think about what does it mean to be human, it's helpful to realize where are we in regards to other creatures. Notice that above humans, it says angels. We are not angels. Angels are not us. Different creatures. Angels are purely spirit, purely spiritual. They are of the spiritual realm, okay? Human beings, we are a mix of the material matter and the spiritual spirit, okay? Underneath us, you see animals and plants. We love animals and plants. They're great, but they're not human beings. They are purely of the material world. We are sort of an odd creature in a sense. We are the only creature that God has created that exists in both realms, the spiritual and the material. This is very important for you to understand. We are not trapped in our bodies, right? We don't just walk around and our souls are what's important, our bodies don't matter, okay? Our bodies are very, very important. In and through the gift of my body is how I offer myself to another and how I receive the gift of another. This is very important to understand. You are both a body and a soul. If you do not have your body, you are not you, right? You don't go to the doctor and you're like, oh, that hand over there, I broke it. You're like, my hand, right? It's a part of you, okay? So, catechism quotes, you realize this, I just shared it with you, but the point is that they're spiritual, angels cannot be seen, they do have an intelligence and will, they are immortal, they are surpassing in perfection to all visible creatures as the splendor of their glory bears witness. If you want to talk more about angels, you can stay after because we'll have really cool talk time. But I'm going to keep going. Animals and plants, solely material, right? Human beings, like we just said, only ones, both material and spiritual. Meaning, 
if I exist in the material world, if you hit me, it affects me, right? That also means that the spiritual realm, which is real, affects me. Remember, our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's also really powers and principalities, right? You are in a spiritual battle. God desires to bring you to himself, but he needs you to participate in that battle. How do you do that? Prayer and the sacraments, which we'll talk more about later, but we gotta get going. So, this is about what it means to be human. The human person, created in the image of God, is a being at once corporeal, meaning bodily, and spiritual. The biblical account expresses this reality in symbolic language when it affirms that then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man whole and entire is therefore willed by God. Your existence is willed. It's not an accident, it's not a coincidence, it's not a chance. You are willed by God the Father. He knew that you would be at this talk, right? Lucky for me, people shut up. But he knew that you would be here, not for me or for some crazy like, oh, let me learn more and talk to people. No, like so that you could receive something, that you could receive the truth that your existence matters. So I just want to show you these four qualities of the soul to help you see it a little bit deeper because we're talking about what does it mean to be human? So what's the big deal about our soul? These are four qualities the church refers to. One, it's spiritual. You can't hit my soul. In the spiritual sense, you can't whack it, right? I can't hold it in my hand, I can't wake it, right? It's created immediately by God. God is the one who produces it, the parents do not. So that is particularly how we are co-creators with Him. Our soul is the reality participating in how we are made in His image and His likeness. It's immortal, meaning it never dies. Your soul will not die, ever, 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 okay? It's going to be reunited with the body in the final resurrection, okay? So you need both to be alive. Your body plus your soul equals you. What is the definition of what happens? What do we call when you separate your body and your soul? Death. Death, okay? When the body and the soul separate, that's when we experience death. Biologically, things will be shutting down in some way, but we say that it truly happens when the soul and the body separate. Your body gets buried, your soul remains alive. That's why the assumption of Our Lady is such a big deal. She has her body. She shows us the glory that we are called to one day in heaven. You will get your body back. It's something to rejoice about. So, what's your spiritual component? Good. What's the material component? Your body. Okay. Are you ever going to become an angel? No, 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 no. Grandma does not get angel wings. Cute, but no. I know what people are trying to say. I'm not saying it doesn't provide comfort at times. I can't focus on that right now, but here's the reality. I don't want you to become an angel, because if you're an angel, you're not you. You were not made to be an angel. You were made to be a human being. Right? That's a big deal. So how are we creating this image and likeness? We're, we're going deeper and deeper. Have you ever had someone come up to you and they're like, you look just like your mom, or you look just like your dad, right? You've had that happen before. You look just like your sister. What, mean, what they mean when they say that is, when I look at you, I think of your mom, or your dad, or your sister, right? Your image to me reflects back to me this original person. God created us 
in his image and likeness. That means that we exist to all of creation as a mirror of who God is, okay? When they look at us, when someone looks at me, they're supposed to come to understand just a little bit more who is God, right? Now, do you wonder why our world is so crazy today? With the fall, what happens to that mirror? Bam, it shatters, right? Grace puts the pieces back together, but it's a slow patient process. But if we're looking to other human beings to be an image to us of who God is, to reflect back to us who God is, and those human beings are choosing for hatred, choosing not to love, then no wonder why we get confused about who God really is, right? Because we're not living up to the calling we have as human beings, which is to reflect God to all of creation. And when I ask you for the one word you knew when you were in first grade and you put it on all your religion tests, who is God? What would you say to me? Love. God is love. I reflect God in a lot of ways. If I'm merciful, if I'm hopeful, all those things point back to one thing, love. God is love. If I am called, if you were called, if we are created in his image and likeness, that rational soul, that gift of freedom, means I have the capacity and the ability to choose. Because love, at the end of the day, everyone in this room, if it's the only thing you walk away with, it's worth it. At the end of the day, love is a choice. It's not an emotion. Can our emotions be with it? Sure, and they're great sometimes. Sometimes they're not, right? Does you think it feels good when a woman delivers a baby? I don't really think it feels that great, right? But love is a choice, right? Or like the dad has to get up and do all this stuff and like baby's crying and I've worked in an hour and didn't get any sleep. Like love is a choice. You choose for the good, for what is best for the other. So let's go to Genesis itself. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field, but for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. Two big things. One, he gets to name the animals. Who do we get to name? You get to name your children, right? You name your children, it's a gift you get to name them, but it also shows the sort of responsibility you have over them. He was invited to name the animals because he was entrusted with the mission of guarding the garden of guarding creation, including the animals, right? I mean, can you imagine though, that's really funny image, like giraffe, tiger, lion, like, kind of a him. I don't know what I would have called them, but there you are. The last line is the most important part of this. For the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam is walking around in the garden and he's realizing more and more about himself. He's walking and says they walk with God. He can look at God in a certain sense and he wants to emulate him, but he's like, how do I do it? Like, that's a nice giraffe, but like, we are not common. Like, I, I want to have a conversation with her. What? What does that even mean? Like, hey, giraffe, how's your day? Like, nothing, right? He realizes God even gives him this gift, right? There is a true fulfillment he has because he's with God. But if God is an eternal communion of love, aka the Trinity, this hurts my brain, but keep going. The Trinity, three persons in one God. The reality is that they are eternally united in the gift of love to each other, 
right? So though man had a complete satisfaction with God, he realizes and knows the depths of who he is. I was made for an other. Part of his fulfillment is that he has given the opportunity and chance to offer himself as a gift. But there was found no helper fit for him. God let him realize that. That's a mercy, right? It's a mercy for us to realize what we need sometimes. Because then, when we're given those things, we realize everything is gift. Everything is gift. So, what happens? To be, quote, JP2, he says, in response to this, man is in front of God, searching for his own being, in search of his own identity. Do so some of you feel like that right now? I feel like you probably do. You're in front of God, and you're like, what the heck am I doing with my life, Lord? Who am I? I need an answer, because the world's telling me that this is not, it's not sitting right. God allows man to discover in and through his own eye that he is superior to other creatures. Man sees through this discovery of what he is not. He realizes what he is not. I am not a lion, I'm not a tiger, I'm not a bear. Okay? All of which helps him to better understand what he is. He is alone and that there is not another like himself. He knows he was created to offer himself as a gift. He knows he's called to love, but he doesn't have the resource to be able to offer himself. There's no other person, there's no other creature like himself. So, without being able to offer the gifts of his entire self, he was unable to live united in true communion. Communion, to be in union with another. This is really important. This is for all of us. Man becomes an image of God, not so much in the moment of solitude, as in the moment of communion, okay? As in the moment of communion. We are called to be gifts, offer ourselves a gift and to receive. Okay, someone tell me what's up with this picture. Who is that? Great guess, God. Just kidding, you know it's God. What we usually see is on the right-hand side, his finger is not there because they cut off by the cropping, but you know he's touching Adam's finger, right? You're all used to seeing that image, am I right? And it's like, Adam's like lifeless, and God's giving him life. And the moment, the artist captures the moment right before life is offered, right? So it's this, like, all of creation's like waiting, like, boom, and then it happens. But you're in the waiting, okay? Look behind his left arm. I just want all of you to experience this and see this and understand this. Eve was always a part of the plan. God wasn't like, oops, yeah, could have made that a little bit better. Let me make a woman. No. Okay, we well, are not superior anyway either. Man and the woman are equal, but they're different. But if you look behind me, his left arm is around who? A woman. Eve was always intended from the beginning of creation. Eve is right here in the beginning. If you look at like what's around God, that organ, it's supposed to look like a brain, okay? Eve has always existed in the mind of God. To illustrate this a little bit better, imagine a couple, they just got married, they're about to have a baby, this is connected, I promise, and they're building a house. What are they really excited to get to? They're excited to get to the nursery, where they get to build and decorate. They're preparing for the baby, but before they can get to the nursery, they have to put up walls. Before they can put up walls, they have to put up foundation, right? They create and prepare a space for the child. God has created and prepared a space for us. Light and darkness a dome for the earth, then animals, right? And then man and woman. So this brings us to the point of Adam is now created and all of creation is waiting because Adam's like, oh, 
on, like I'm feeling this ache. How do I how do I image you? From Genesis, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Notice, I don't know what this means. You guys can take this to prayer. God always does really important things when men are sleeping. I don't say that in a negative way, but you're usually asleep, and then he talks to you or does something. He called Joseph, right, to marry our lady in sleep. He called him to flee to Egypt while he was sleeping. I don't know what it is, but ask Jesus to give you cold drinks and you can do it. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, dun, 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 This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother, and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and were not ashamed. I don't think I have to really give you much of a picture for you to understand that we don't have that experience anymore. Obviously, we're all wearing clothes. But the reality is, I want you to even think about it. If you were in the shower and somebody barges in, like you're going to go to cover yourself, right? It's not just also, like, it's also you. There's a certain protection that shame offers us because we don't know how the other is going to receive us. Because we no longer have the eyes to see because sin has blinded us from the gift of what a human person is, which is a gift, right? But notice these words. I know it's not in our lingo, but I promise you they're not, not, not equivalent to like, dang girl, like look that on her, right? I've actually never said that at talk, sorry, Father. But people say that, right? Just being real with you, I'm gonna be real with you a lot. It's different than like, oh, she's hot. Really, I'm a piece of chicken, thanks. No, I'm not. I don't have like a temperature like I do, I'm alive. But you know what I mean. The point is, this is not a comment of degradation. This isn't a comment of, oh my gosh, like what can I get from her? This is a comment of, of her own, wow, she's a gift. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He sees, wow, like she is like me. And he knows that he can find himself because he can first give himself, right? He can first give himself. This is a word of awe, of wonder, right? That was God's original intention. That is only then when God says, everything else he created, he said, it is good, he looks around, it is good, he looks around, it is good. After the creation of woman, when he's reached that completion, in Hebrew, technically, they repeat the word, good, good. It was good, good. For us, we would say it was a very good. God only says that once, and he says it at the end, after the creation of woman, which points to the reality that that's when the completion of the fulfillment happens. Woman has always existed in the mind of God. Man and woman are both very important. This says really cool things about the fact that it's a cry of wonder, an exclamation of love, right? Man discovers woman as another I. She is human. He sees he can offer himself as a gift. Each exists for the other. They are not half, right? It's not like I'm 50% and you're 50%. They are equal. In marriage, we see that happen. Now look, I'm about to like, breeze through, because we're limited time. But if you want to ask questions and I can go deeper, please stay at the end. I know you all can't, but 10 more minutes until I'm like super done. Okay. I want you to see this middle quote. 
It says we cannot truly understand our current state of existence that is original sin unless we understand our original state of existence that is original holiness. This is where Christ leads us through his words to the Pharisees, what I read from the beginning. Original holiness, that's what we're walking in. We're walking in this space and place where we have not yet sinned and we are truly and fully united with God, which allows us to be fully united with others, with the gifts that we are entrusted with, which is most especially people, including in the gifts of their nakedness, which has to do with this, he's trying to say in original nakedness, I mean, he does it like over a year, so I have like 30 seconds, okay. There is no break, there's no like, oh, there's Eve's soul, real cute, but I really like her body. It's like, there's Eve, and there's Adam. There's no break between the material and the spiritual. We're so integrated. I want you to do something with me, because I'm gonna use this word a lot throughout this entire series. The word integration, what does that mean? It means to be together. I want you to take your hands and put them together like I'm about to do. Now, I want you to raise up your hands. Don't hit the person next to you. I want to go to the left. Now go to the right. Okay. Now, try to like, pull your hands apart. Okay. You can put that up. When you go to the left, you go to the right. The left and the right hand go together because they're integrated. They are one. What sin does is a disintegration. It severs the bond. Okay? So before sin, I don't just see Eve's body and I see what I can take from that. Or I see Adam's body and what can I take from that. I see the gift of a person. It's not what can I take from you, it's what can I offer you, okay? Intimacy, another way people explain it is into me see, right? So, simply put y'all, the original innocence is the state where we are like submerged and swimming in grace. We're like just in it, okay? The very life of God, so much so that I can actually see. You think you see beauty now, y'all? Just wait. Like, just wait until our eyes, all of the darkness has been peeled away, and we can truly see the light. Before the fall, we can see. We can really, really see. Especially, right, the freedom of the gifts, creations of gifts, that there's a spousal meaning to the body, meaning I can give myself as a gift and receive a gift of the other, and life. I can help create life in a way that's intentional. Who else creates with intention? God, right? Um, so basically, original innocence, we were able to share a divine life. We, like, we wanted to be with God, we were. He wanted to give us everything, he did, himself, right? But we also had a self-mastery. We were so integrated, there wasn't this battle in between what I should do and what I have, what I should do, what I have, we were, right? Um, the bottom quote, for purity of heart, we pray for that because that grace echoes back to the beginning when I have the eyes to truly see. So just for you to understand, before the fall, within the order of creation, man exists perfectly united in relationship with God himself, man and woman, and all of creation, okay? The mirror is not yet shattered. Okay, all of this is built up I want you to pray with this. I'm giving you information, but you should go pray with this because it helps you understand your call. It was perfect. We wanted for nothing. So how the heck did the fall happen? Okay, so let's transition from original man to historical man. How does that happen? Original sin, the fall. Before the fall, original innocence, we're integrated. After the fall, original sin, we're fallen. We, that's what we call the fall. We fell from grace. 
we chose to walk away from grace. So shame is sort of this boundary experience for us. This is what the Catechism says about the fall, and I think it's the best quote to describe it. It says, man tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart, and abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. Man preferred himself to God, and by that very act, scorned him. He chose himself over and against God, against the requirements of his creaturely status, and therefore against his own good. Created and constituted in a state of holiness, man was destined to be fully divinized by God in glory. And seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God, but without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. I want to be like you, but I don't want you. We rejected him, y'all. He didn't reject us. He said, I'm here, and I'm going to give you the gifts of myself. And we said, take it. I'm walking away. They become afraid of the God of whom they have conceived a distorted image, that of a God jealous of his prerogatives. The silence of the room is appropriate because I just want you to feel that, y'all. Feel it. He did not desire for us to live in this space of brokenness. We chose it. We chose it. So what happens? That unity, original justice, original holiness, original innocence, all the same thing. We took the mirror and we took a hammer and we smashed it. We smashed it. Okay, before you all leave and you're like, thanks a lot. Okay, hope is real. <laughs> I just had to feel that for a second. But original man was created in a state that would be surpassed only by the glory of the new creation in Christ. We're in the between right now, okay? But you get to participate and still choose, where do I go after this life? Your life is not just this world. You answer your vocation based on eternity. Because there is an eternal vocation for you. So this is an echo and prefigurement of what's to come. Um, next time, I think I'm going to dive into the fall because I could do a really cool role play with it. But we're out of time for that. I have two more things to show you. One, this quote. It's one of my favorites from G.K. Chesterton. And this is what he said. A child kicks its legs rhythmically through excess, not absence, of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. And a mic drop. G.K. Chesterton said it, and I wish I could unhear it. Because we have sinned and grown very old, and our Father is younger than we. You guys, we grow up and live in a culture, and I'm sorry, but I'm with you, right? This is not what he wanted for us. He did not want us to live in a world of what 
easiest example, I'm sorry, but for me to give you, Gift of Childlike Wonder, what's the total opposite of that that I can easily say in the culture? Pornography, right? One woman is not enough. G.K. Chesterton, he's great, he also said this. He said, keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I can only be married once was like complaining that I can only be born once. The problem's not with the woman. The problem's not with the other. The problem is my inner heart. He's telling the Pharisees to go back to the beginning because he's like, you're the one choosing. What do you choose? I offer you love. I put before you life and death. Choose. We have to pray for the grace to see, to see like children. And I'm just telling you what Jesus said, right? Like he said, who's gonna get into the kingdom? Ones like these little ones. We can grow old in our bodies, but our soul that's always alive, we invite God in so that we are cultivated with this youth, right? This littleness, that we delight in the small things. So these are the two quotes I want you to take to prayer before our next presentation. One is from Matthew 5, 8, and one is from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. One, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now that you like have heard everything I said tonight, don't move yet, listen, listen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's all around you. You have hundreds of people walking around you. That means you have hundreds of images of God walking around you. They are not the problem, right? We ask for the eyes to see, that I begin to see that these are people entrusted to me as a gift. God is all around me because he resides within the other, right? And the last quote, for now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Praise the Lord that we do get to see in a mirror. There is mercy and there is hope. He still lets us see within the mirror. But one day we shall see face to face. So realize, and this is my closing thought, if you get confused on why they're like, okay, there's no marriage in heaven, what does that mean? I know, I just dropped a bomb, we'll address it. This is the deal. They say that because when God created Adam and Eve, when Adam awakens, right, Eve, pretend I'm Eve for a second, Eve's here, but he's drawn to Eve. When he's drawn to Eve, God the Father's right behind him because he just made me. So as Adam comes closer to me, he comes closer to God, and vice versa, right? We see it in a mirror. It's reflected. I reflect to Adam who God is. Adam reflects to me who God is. But one day, right, we can be united in marriage, hold hands, look at each other, da-da-da, magical, right? But... As we bring each other closer to God, when I'm in heaven, what the heck? We have the prize. We're with God himself. And think about it. It's not like there's this division and oh, marriage is important. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, instead of looking like this, because we need to reflect God to each other, we now hold hands and we look forward and we now see God face to face. My mission, my vocation, if I'm called to marriage, is to bring the other to heaven. When I get there, we have the prize. For now, we see as in a mirror dimly. But then, y'all, this is our call. This is the joy I promised to hope for you. Then we shall see face to face. I would like to close in a prayer. So if you don't mind, you can pray with me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of this time. Lord, I thank you for the gift of John Paul II. I thank you for the gift of his wisdom and his love for each of us, his spiritual children. I ask that you would pray with us and for us during this series. 
Lord, I ask you to provide us the space and place that we would hear your voice. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. And I especially beg you, Lord, and trust that you will fulfill this prayer, that you would give to each of us your heart, that we would have the hearts of children. In having the hearts of children, that we would have hearts that are purified by love. And in having hearts that are purified by love, we have the eyes to finally, and maybe for the first time, truly see. As we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. John Paul II, pray for us, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.